Welcome to Backlog Books. My name is Kara. This is the podcast where I talk about what I have been reading lately. Thank you for listening, and please be prepared for spoilers. We're going to jump in to this week's book very soon. I just wanted to put a personal note here that it's been exactly one year since I started working from home due to COVID-19, which is just baffling. I'm so excited that so many of my friends and loved ones have been getting the vaccine, and I'm very much looking forward to when it will be available to me. I am just so ready to hug all of my friends again. But that's not what we're here to talk about. We're here to talk about books. Well, okay, I'm here to talk about books. You're here to listen to me talk about books. So let's get to it. This time we are talking about Gideon the Ninth by Tamsin Muir. This book was published in 2019, and it is the first book in the Locked Tomb trilogy. It has 448 pages, and I read it in December of 2020. Our author, Tamsin Muir, was born in 1985 and is a New Zealander. Gideon the Ninth was her first book, and she won the Locus Award for Best First Novel for it in 2020. Here is the summary. The Emperor needs necromancers. The Ninth Necromancer needs a swordswoman. Gideon has a sword, some dirty magazines, and no more time for undead bullshit. Brought up by unfriendly ossifying nuns, ancient retainers, and countless skeletons, Gideon is ready to abandon a life of servitude and an afterlife as a reanimated corpse. She packs up her sword, her shoes, and her dirty magazines and prepares to launch her daring escape. But her childhood nemesis won't set her free without a service. Harrowhark Nonagesimus, reverend daughter of the Ninth House and bone witch extraordinaire, has been summoned into action. The emperor has invited the heirs to each of his loyal houses to a deadly trial of wits and skill. If Harrowhark succeeds, she will become an immortal, all-powerful servant of the resurrection, but no necromancer can ascend without their cavalier. Without Gideon's sword, Harrow will fail and the Ninth House will die. Of course, some things are better left dead. Quick content warning for lots of swearing and obviously lots of death in this book about necromancers and also a suicide, which we'll cover later. Muir wrote a very interesting world with necromancers in space. I love the idea. I'm reminded of Nine Fox Gambit. The tone and the style are very different, but the idea of science-slash-magic that only works in a certain predetermined area of space is similar. It's kind of funny, but to me, the necromancers feel more like scientists, whereas the Nine Fox Gambit world felt more like magic. In Muir's world, however, you can almost forget that they have space travel, whereas that was very important in Nine Fox Gambit. I won't spend the whole time comparing them. I just thought it was funny to talk about them right after each other. Though the world of Gideon the Ninth is unique and interesting and mysterious, 
I actually struggled to read it. The first 50 or so pages were an uphill climb. And the reason for that, for me, is that Muir's writing really likes to play with and explore language, which is great and interesting. I just have never been more glad that I was reading an ebook. I could very easily look up what a word meant without having to step away from the page. There were so many words about bones and churches, words like epiphyseal or chancel. It absolutely makes sense for these necromancers to use complicated words about bones that I had to look up. I don't know anything about bones. But it was more than that, because I've read books with complicated jargon before. But along with the bone jargon, we have our main character, Gideon, who talks like a millennial. I'm a millennial. I like millennials. Was I expecting Gideon to sound like a millennial in this book about space necromancers? Absolutely not. There are memes in this murder mystery space necromancer book. I was unprepared. No one warned me. I really struggled with it. I was close to giving up and just accepting that these books weren't for me. You know what happens? Sometimes you just don't vibe with someone's writing style. But I will say, once the characters set off for their main quest, either I got used to it or the writing got better, or, third option, more interesting things were happening and balanced out my frustration with the language and tone. By the end, I found myself enjoying the writing and finding it funny rather than annoying. But it was an uphill climb to get to that point. So, to talk about the actual events of this book... We have a star system of necromancers, nine houses or planets with their own specialties in necromantic arts who all serve the emperor, their undying god, because he brought their worlds back to life 10,000 years ago. The ninth house where our main characters come from specializes in bones, and they guard a locked tomb where it is said that the emperor's greatest enemy is entombed. We begin with Gideon enacting her 18th escape attempt. Gideon desperately wants to be anywhere else. She and the entirety of the Ninth House are at odds, personalities and desires clashing nonstop. Gideon is an outsider, shunned despite spending her entire life in the Ninth House. She doesn't know why everyone is, is against her, and she has decided she doesn't care anymore. She just wants to leave and find somewhere to belong. She is caught on her escape attempt by Harrow Hark, the daughter of the rulers of the Ninth House. Harrow has an offer for Gideon. Serve as her cavalier, her swordswoman, in a trial set by the emperor. A trial the heirs of all the houses are invited to. If they succeed, they will become lictors, powerful, nearly immortal necromancers in direct service to the emperor. Harrow swears that if Gideon helps her in this trial, she will set Gideon free. Gideon and Harrow hate each other. They have been at odds since they were children. Gideon has tried over and over to escape, only for Harrow to stop her. But this seems as good of an offer as Gideon is going to get, so she agrees to be Harrow's cavalier. 
they take a space shuttle to Canaan House, which is an ancient, mostly abandoned house. It's filled with mysterious servants and maze-like passageways. They are joined by the heirs and cavaliers of the other seven houses and left to figure out the mystery of how to become a lictor. There are only eight houses represented, by the way, because the first house is the Emperor's house. The undying god Necromancer doesn't have or need an heir, I guess, which makes sense due to the undying part of his title. I found it a little difficult to keep track of the large and varied cast of characters, but it did help that they all have surnames which reflect the house to which they belong. Tridentarius belongs to the third house, Septimus to the seventh, Nonagesimus to the ninth, and so on. As the story progresses, you get a better picture of the nine houses overall and how they interact with each other. We also get some hints about the universe outside of the ninth house, about a never-ending war that the emperor is fighting and maybe a reason why he needs more lictors. But that's a topic for another book. This book is focused on the trial. The ninth is perhaps the worst off of all the houses. Harrow and Gideon are the only surviving children of their generation, but the ninth house is also the most secretive and hidden. The other houses know almost nothing about them, and the ninth house likes it that way. Gideon and Harrow, despite nominally being bound together as cavalier and necromancer, are at odds. Harrow leaves on mysterious errands, determined to figure out the lictor mystery on her own, and Gideon is left to stumble through interacting with the other houses. The ninth house has been so secretive and strange for so long that no one is quite sure what to do with her, and Gideon is, once again, a lonely outsider. She does eventually make a few friends, and these friends reveal what Harrow has been up to. There is a labyrinth of laboratories in the basement, each with a particular necromantic test in it. Harrow has been going into the labs and attempting to pass these tests on her own. Led by her new friends, Gideon finds Harrow nearly dead after attempting one of these tests and insists that Harrow let her help. Gideon has no particular loyalty to Harrow or her house, but Gideon desperately wants to belong. She's been treated like a pariah her whole life, ever since her mother's mysterious arrival at the ninth house and subsequent death. Together, Gideon and Harrow beat one of the tests and discover a key. It turns out all these tests require Cavalier and Necromancer to work together. The key they find leads them to a secret room, which, unlike the rest of the house, is extremely well-preserved. The room seems to be from the rise of the first lictors ten thousand years ago. Inside, there is a secret necromantic formula, and Harrow puts it together. Each test will lead to a key and a room and a formula, and somehow the formulas, when combined, will help them become lictors. Gideon doesn't really care. She's here with her big sword to smash stuff and make bad jokes, which I respect. She's just glad to have someone to talk to and to help. Gideon would give her heart on a toothpick to anyone who asked for it. She has been ostracized and alone for so long. 
The emperor gave no actual instructions for how this trial should take place, whether they should collaborate or whether only one of them can become a lictor, and bereft of any particular instruction or leadership, the houses are suspicious of each other and start fights. And then one set of necromancer and cavalier turn up dead. The already suspicious houses turn on each other, arguing that they should leave or collaborate or kill each other for the keys. It really goes to show just how little these houses are willing to cooperate, even threatened by an outside force. They can't get it together. Something in the basement labs is killing them off, leaving cryptic messages in blood, but even with a threat they could band together against, they are still at each other's throats. Gradually, over the course of this, Harrow and Gideon get closer, and like three-quarters of the way through the book, they finally decide to fully trust one another. Harrow apologizes for purposefully making Gideon's life miserable and shares the secrets the Ninth House has been hiding. Harrow desperately needs to become Lictor in order to save her house from collapse. They just don't have the population to survive. Only as a Lictor can she petition the necromancer god-emperor to renew the Ninth House. Harrow could ask another house for help, but then the ninth house would be beholden to them, and Harrow cannot bring herself to lower her house to be subject to another. Things start to go even more downhill after this, if you can imagine, after all the murder and suspicion. The necromancer and cavalier from the second house attack the servants and send out a message for help, but the only person they can contact is the emperor himself. And while the houses are fighting and arguing and trying to decide what to do, one of the necromancers, Ianthe Tridentarius, has been focused on the trials and she figures it out. The way to become a lictor is to absorb the soul of your cavalier, and the necromantic formulas that the tests lead you to show you the way to do it. And Ianthe, while everyone is distracted, she does so, ascending to lictorhood even though her cavalier doesn't want, you know, for his soul to be absorbed. Ianthe believes that she has won because she figured it out, and she gloats to all the other representatives. Despite Harrow's desperate need to become a lictor and save her house, once she learns that the cost would be Gideon's life, she refuses. The remaining house representatives turn on Ianthe, but with her new lictor powers, she slips away from them easily. And they still don't know what's been killing them off. Until they realize that one of the representatives is a fake. And it turns out one of the first lictors, the, you know, the 10,000-year-old ones, has turned against the emperor. The lictor Scytheria I was killing them off slowly and carefully while keeping the information about lictorhood away so that someone would crack and summon the emperor. And, helpfully, someone did. The remaining few necromancers and cavaliers attempt to take down Scytheria before she kills them all. It's 
laughable. She is so powerful and has 10,000 years of experience as a necromancer and a lictor. Even Ianthi, who has incredible powers now, barely lasts any time in the fight. Harrow and Gideon are almost the last ones standing. They're sheltered together in a bone shield, and Gideon can tell that Harrow is at the end of her strength, and if she doesn't do something, they will both die. Gideon, who a few short weeks ago wanted nothing to do with Harrow or the Ninth House, forces Harrow's hand. Gideon kills herself so that Harrow will take her soul and become a lictor. Harrow has no other option except to die and waste Gideon's sacrifice, so she absorbs Gideon's soul and turns to finish the fight. Fortified by Gideon's soul and with the whisper of Gideon's spirit in her ear, she just barely defeats Cytherea. And she's won. She has everything she ever wanted and now desperately wishes she didn't. Hera wakes later in a strange place, with the undying emperor god sitting next to her bed. He explains that he meant for the trial to be collaborative, for them to work together to realize what becoming a lictor meant and discuss it thoroughly before deciding whether they would choose to become one. Listen, Mr. Undying Emperor Necromancer, sir, if you really wanted that, you should have given them some actual instructions. I mean, maybe if there hadn't been murders going on, that's what would have happened naturally, but I feel like things between the houses were tense from the beginning. The emperor goes on to explain to Harrow that he needs new lictors to fight in a war that's been going on since the rebirth of their worlds 10,000 years ago. Harrow's god sits beside her bed and tells her he needs her help. He's losing this war. And that's pretty much the end. Overall, I'd recommend it. The balance of necromancers and space travel and Gideon's strange and strangely compelling narrative voice really make it an interesting read. If you're having difficulty adjusting to the tone like I was, I'd say give it a little while. Like I said earlier, I think it balances itself out once it starts to focus on the necromantic trials and the mystery, and less on how much Gideon hates being in the Ninth House. I do like that this is obviously a planned trilogy. Clearly this story is going somewhere, and the author knows where that is. I was thinking about doing a separate episode for the sequel, Harrow the Ninth, which I read shortly after this one. But instead of a full episode, I'll just include a quick note here. The second book is very different, mostly because it is written almost entirely in second person, which is so different. When was the last time you read a book written in second person? The jokes are still in there. The tone is mostly the same. I think it's balanced a little better. I will say I was also frustrated with the second book, for a different reason. Most of the book seems to completely undo everything that happened in the first book. This turns out not to be the case, but it takes until almost the very end of the book for that to become clear. So Muir once again walked the line between what I liked and what I hated. 
I did like the books. Just so we're clear, I just think I would have read them a little further apart instead of picking up Harrow immediately after finishing Gideon if I had known that they were going to be like that. If you want more media like this, the closest thing I can think of is Hold Me Closer Necromancer by Lish McBride. And that's it. You can join me next time to hear about the Circle of Magic series by Tamora Pierce. You can find the pod on Facebook at Backlog Books Podcast. Comments, questions, thoughts, you can always email me at backlogbookspod at gmail.com. The music is by Joseph McDade. You can hear more of his work at josephmcdade.com. Thank you for spending this time with me. I hope to talk with you again soon. Mm-hmm.